0: talk geek to me news number 81 recorded for wednesday november 21st 2012 you are listening to the tech only hacker public radio edition to get the full podcast including political commentary and other controversial topics please visit www.talkgeektome.us Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in DeepGeek TalkGeek to me. And now the tech roundup. From EFF.org, dated November 8, 2012, by Hanny Fakuri, court blocks Proposition 35's restriction on anonymous speech. A few hours after EFF and the ACLU of North California filed a class-action lawsuit in San Francisco. In San Francisco Federal Court challenging California's recently enacted Proposition 35, the Court issued a temporary restraining order blocking implementation of the initiative due to the existence of serious questions about whether it violated the First Amendment. Proposition 35 is ostensibly about increasing punishment for human traffickers, but would also require all registered sex affairs in California to turn over a list of all their internet identifiers and service providers to law enforcement. Leading up to the election, we urged California voters to reject it, worrying this would result in a significant restriction of free speech on the internet. We weren't alone in criticizing Proposition 35. Newspapers like the LA Times and Sacramento Spoke out against the initiative, too. Unfortunately, yet unsurprisingly, California voters overwhelmingly approved the initiative on election night. Wednesday morning, we filed suit, arguing Proposition 35 violates the First Amendment because requiring people, even unpopular people, to give up their ability to speak freely and anonymously chills free speech. Proposition 35 eliminates. The ability of a whole class of people, 73,000 individuals in California, to speak anonymously online by forcing them to turn over any identifier they use, whether it's anonymous or John Joe, or their real name. Plus, it requires disclosure of information about online accounts unrelated to criminal activity, like Yelp or Amazon.com and most troubling it allows the government to monitor and record a wide swath of innocent internet activity from a registrant with a fantasy football team to the one who comments on a political discussion group while we certainly believe that human trafficking is a terrible crime requiring registrants to turn over online identifiers doesn't combat this issue instead it creates a dangerous slippery slope like mandatory dna collection before it what begins with sex offenders inevitably expands as law enforcement gets hooked to accessing this online data and starts demanding more and more of it. The temporary restraining order is an important first step in ensuring that the First Amendment isn't the casualty of a well-intentioned but ultimately overbroad and dangerous initiative. In stopping the implementation of Proposition 35, the court recognized the important issues that need to be considered before the law could go into effect. A hearing is now scheduled for December 17th on whether the court should grant a permanent injunction striking down the law permanently. From EFF.org, Dead November 14th, 2012, by Hanny Fakuri and Kurt Upshall and Rainy Friedman, When will our email betray us? An email privacy primer in light of the Petraeus saga the unfolding scandal that led to the resignation of general David Petraeus the director of the Central Intelligence Agency stored with some purportedly harassing emails sent from pseudonymous email accounts to Jill Kelly. After the FBI kicked its investigation into high gear, it identified the sender as Paula Broadwell and, ultimately, read massive amounts of private email messages that uncovered an affair between Broadwell and Petraeus. And now the investigation has expanded to include General John Allen's emails with Kelly we've received a lot of questions about how this works what legal process the FBI needs to conduct its email investigation the short answer it's complicated the electronic communications privacy act (ECPA) is a 1986 law that Congress enacted to protect your privacy in electronic communications like email and instant messages ECPA provides scant protection for your identifying information such as the IP address used to access an account. While Paula Broadwell reportedly created a new pseudonymous account for the allegedly harassing emails to Jill Kelly, she apparently did not take steps to disguise the IP number her messages were coming from. The FBI could have obtained this information with just a subpoena to the service provider, but obtaining the account's IP address alone does not establish the identity of the email sender. Broadwell apparently accessed the emails from hotels and other locations, not her home, so the FBI cross-referenced the IP addresses of these Wi-Fi hotspots against guest lists from other cities and hotels looking for common names. If Broadwell wanted to stay anonymous, a new email account combined with open Wi-Fi was not enough. The ACLU has an in-depth write-up of the surveillance and security lessons to be learned from this after the fbi identified broadwell they searched her email according to news reports the affair between petraeus and broadwell lasted from november 2011 to july 2012 the harassing email sent by broadwell to jill kelly started in may of 2012 and kelly notified the fbi shortly thereafter Thus, in the summer of 2012, when the FBI was investigating, the bulk of the emails would be less than 180 days old. This 180-day-old dividing line is important for determining how ECPA applies to email. Compared to identifying information, ECPA provides more legal protection for the contents of your email, but with gaping exceptions. While a small but increasing number of federal courts have found that the Fourth Amendment requires a warrant for all email, the government claims ECPA only requires a warrant for email that is stored for 180 days or less. But as the Department of Justice manual for searching and seizing email makes clear, the government believes this only applies to unopened email. Other mail is fair game, with only a subpoena, even if the messages are less than 180 days old. According to reports, Petraeus and Broadwell adopted a technique of drafting emails and reading them in the draft folder rather than sending them the DOJ would likely consider draft messages as opened email and therefore not entitled to the protection of a search warrant. In a nutshell... Although ECPA requires a warrant for the government to obtain the contents of an email stored online for less than 180 days, the government believes the warrant requirement doesn't apply for email that was opened and left on the server. The typical scenario for webmail systems like Gmail, even if the messages are less than 180 days old, so under the government's view, so long as the emails had been opened or were saved in the drafts folder, only a subpoena was required to look at the contents of Broadwell's email account. Confused? Well, here's where things get really complicated. The government's view of the law was rejected by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals the federal appellate court that covers the western United States, including California, and the home to many online email companies and the servers that host their messages. As a result, the DOJ manual notes that agents outside of the Ninth Circuit can therefore obtain such email and other stored electronic or wire communications in electronic storage more than 180 days using a subpoena, but reminds agents in the Ninth Circuit to get a warrant. News reports show that the FBI agents involved in the Petraeus scandal were in Tampa, Florida. Thus, according to the DOJ manual, they did not need to get a warrant even if the email provider was in California, like, for example, Gmail. Law enforcement elsewhere may continue to apply the traditional narrow interpretation of electronic storage, even when the data sort is within the Ninth Circuit. A subpoena for email content would generally require notice to the subscriber, though another section of ECPA allows for delayed notice for up to 90 days. The FBI interviewed Broadwell for the first time in September, about 90 days after the investigation began in June. However, many providers nevertheless protect their users by following the Ninth Circuit rule and insist upon a warrant for the contents of all email. In EFF's experience, the government will seek a warrant rather than litigate the issue. Thus, assuming the service provider stepped up, it is likely that the government used the warrant to obtain access to the emails at issue. To read the rest of this article, follow links in the show notes. From TorrentFreak.com, by Ernesto date November 18, 2012. Mega Upload search warrant requests ignored massive non-infringing use. In the wake of the January shutdown of Mega Upload, many of the site's legitimate users complained that their personal files had been lost. Among these users are many people in the U.S. military who use the site to share pictures and videos with family Torrent Freak learned that at least 15,634 soldiers had accounts at mega-upload, between them sharing hundreds of thousands of files. One of the users, entrepreneur Kyle Goodwin, asked the court to return his files. As part of this request, his attorneys filed a motion to unseal the mega-upload search warrants so they can see on what grounds the data was taken. This week, Judge O'Grady granted the request and ordered the release of the warrants and their applications, albeit redacted. This means we can now see how the U.S. put forward its request to seize the domains and servers. The search warrant applications don't offer any new facts and mostly recite what has already been written in the indictment. The government describes Mega Upload as nothing more than a place where copyright infringing files are stored, and this is what the judge signed off on. However, what is striking is that none of the released records even mentioned legitimate use of the site. In other words, the rights of Mega Upload's legitimate users were never taken into consideration. Speaking with TorrentFreak, Kim.com shares our surprise, knowing that nearly half of all files stored Mega Upload were never downloaded. The legitimate use was completely ignored in the seizure warrant applications. Almost 50% of the files stored in Mega Upload didn't have a single download. There was massive non-infringing use by those who just wanted to store data in the cloud, unquote.com says. The lack of discussion about the many legitimate users of Mega Upload is concerning. Several of the allegations made against Make Upload could easily apply to other hosting and video services. The FBI, for example, explains in detail how their undercover agent was able to upload, view, and download copyrighted videos, something that's also quite common on YouTube. More direct allegations against Mega Upload are misleading, according to Dotcom. for example, that the Mega Upload team failed to delete infringing files that were pointed out in a criminal search warrant back in 2010. Quote, A member of the Mega Conspiracy informed several of his co-conspirators at that time that he located the named files using internal searches of the mega conspiracy systems. As of November 18, 2011, 36 of the 39 infringing copies of the copyright motion pictures were still being stored on servers controlled by the mega conspiracy, the DOJ writes. However, dot com now explains that they didn't touch the files because they were never asked to do so and didn't want to interfere with evidence in a criminal case. A document seen by Torrent Freak backs this up Quote, The FBI asked us for uploader information regarding 39 files and told us to keep their investigation confidential. We assisted and obviously didn't touch the uploader accounts or files because of the ongoing investigation, unquote, Dot .com tells us. Quote, to use this against us and to tell a judge that the mega-upload domain seizure is justified because we have not removed those 39 files is totally unethical and misleading, unquote, he adds. To read the rest of this article, follow links in the show notes. From TorrentFreak.com, by Ernesto Day, November fifteenth, 2012, Verizon will reduce speeds of repeated BitTorrent pirates. Last year, the MPAA and RIAA teamed up with five major Internet providers in the United States to launch a Center for Copyright Information, the CCI. The parties agreed on a system through which subscribers are warned that their copyright infringements have been observed by rights holders. After several warnings, ISPs may then take a variety of repressive measures to punish the alleged infringers. From leaked AT&T training documents, we learned that the company will block users' access to popular websites until they complete a copyright education course. However, none of the participating Internet providers have publicly commented on the measures they plan to take until now. During a panel discussion hosted by the New York chapter of the Internet Society, Verizon and Time Warner Cable unveiled details of their plans. Link Hoing, Vice President of of internet and technology issues for Verizon, said his company will employ a three-stage process. The first two alerts will result in a simple notification email informing the users that their connection has been flagged for copyright infringements. After the second warning comes the acknowledgement phase in which a pop-up is delivered to users. Once received, subscribers are required to read and confirm a process designed to ensure that they are aware of the unauthorized sharing that's taken place via their account. If the infringements continue, punishments become a reality on the 5th and 6th alerts. Hearing said that these repeated infringers will have their internet connections throttled, resulting in significantly slower download speeds. This throttling is temporary and will be lifted after two or three days. To read the rest of this article, follow links in the show notes. From TechDirt.com by Timothy Gagner, dated November 16, 2012. Taliban spokesman accidentally copies mailing list on press release email. You know that mistake you make where you want to send an email to a bunch of people, typically annoying chain letters about finding love next week if they forward it to 20 people immediately. Luck just doesn't wait around, you know. But you don't want to expose all of your friends and family's emails so you blind copy everyone, except you didn't. Now you're the jackass sending emails with 40 addresses listed and your grandmother hates you for spamming her? Well, funny story. It turns out that one of the few things we freedom-loving folks in the States have in common with our Taliban enemies is an amusing incapacity to check to whom we're sending our emails. Take a look at the oops Taliban spokesperson Kari Hussef hamedi made when he accidentally cc'd rather than bcc'd the Taliban's mailing list on a press release email this past Saturday. Quote, in a Dilbert-esque faux pas, a Taliban spokesperson sent out a routine email last week with one notable difference. He publicly cc'd the names of everyone on his mailing list. The names were disclosed in an email by Kari Youssef Ahmedi, an official Taliban spokesperson. On Saturday, the email was a press release he received from the account of Zabahullah Muhadid, another Taliban spokesperson. Ahmedi then forwarded Mujahide's email to the full Taliban mailing list, but rather than using the BCC function or a blind carbon copy which keeps email addresses private, Ahmedi made the addresses public. I'm sure years from now, when the CIA has once again employed the Taliban to fight on our behalf against the Chinese Australian Alien Alliance, we'll look at back on this and have a nice laugh but there is no understanding that this is a massive screw-up. Sure, most of the folks on the distribution list were journalists, but exposing their names that way, particularly for those that are working within Afghanistan, isn't a good thing. Besides that, not all the people who were exposed were journalists. Quote, The list also includes an address appearing to belong to a provincial governor, an Afghan legislature, several academics and activists, an Afghan consultative committee, and a representative of Gulbuddin Hekmatir, an Afghan warlord whose outlawed group Hezb-e-Islami is believed to be behind several attacks against coalition troops. Somehow I don't see this making the Taliban brass very happy, and Senator Joe Lieberman wants Internet services to block Taliban messages. Why? Let them keep making these kind of mistakes. News from Tector.com InTheseTimes.com, IsonReview.com, used under arranged permission. News from TorrentFreak.com and EFF.org, used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution license. News from VenezuelaAnalysis.com and DemocracyNow.org, used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution non-commercial no Derivatives license. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the viral statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in geek. Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me.